boys, I got fished. I got fucking fished. Like a little, like I got caught on a line. You got fished. fished. That's why I'm dealing with this fucked up computer situation. Um, Here's the thing: is uh, they're getting the advanced. They're advanced these days because I was trying to fix a problem with my printer, and I called an Epson support line that it turns out was fake. And the 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 confusing thing the whole time is I called them, and I I started about like halfway through started realizing that something was weird, and they're like. You called us, man. And I was like, I, I did call you motherfuckers. How did, you called how us, did, man. How what did, are you doing? You yeah, called us. You should install was... the program now. All right, everyone, and welcome to this extra special episode of The Network Age. And I'm here with my boys, Nilrun Mardux and Timlik Miptev. And guys, we're here to talk toll booths. You love them? You hate them? In this context, I hate them. And this is... <laughs> This is inspired by a tweet that you sent out about a few days ago that I really like. That we're featuring my tweets. Right. It's, you know, shout out to Bichelar on Twitter, B-I-C-H-U-L-R. We'll have it in the show notes, special guest. And I had been kind of, you know, rambling on Twitter and he retweeted me and just, you know, added, the world is a series of toll booths as you try to move your shit from A to B. And I think that really, really captured both what annoys me in the current world that I'm trying to defect from and what the network age isn't. And I also think that it also gives a really good framework for what it means for someone to be living in the network age because you can start to say, okay, what are these toll booths that are annoying us? Uh, Where are they located in our lives? And then think of how many you're getting rid of or or have done away with. But I think before we get into that, we should give some context for what we mean by a toll booth. And on my end, I'll just give one anecdote, which is I remember the day that I graduated from university and I was doing whatever the graduation ceremony, like uh, in a little yard. And I distinctly remember, I don't remember that much in my life. I've kind of a bad memory about things that happened to me, but I distinctly remember the, the feeling of like, oh man, sweet. I never have, there's like no more like hoops that I have to jump through. I don't have to do this extra mm-hmm. thing anymore if I want to start real life. And it was a very distinct feeling. Now, you could say that that had been true all along, uh, maybe even more <laughs> in my case than others, which we can get into. But I, I think as life went on, or especially if we're talking this uh, late, you know, 2000 knots like era it it was true it was a real hoop that i had to jump through after which my life had a lot more open directions that it could take what was um the hoop of finishing college like quite literally just to give an you know an example any sort of real job i wanted notably outside of programming in programming they might have been okay to take me without it. Like what required me to graduate, uh, getting visas in a lot of countries that I subsequently did required having gone to university. There, there's all this whole set of things. Getting visas and stuff requires their own series of mini hoops. What we decided uh, uh, offline here is that everything is hoops and everyone is trying to take your money and your time and your mental energy as you're trying to do things that should be simple, that should just as you're trying to move on to things that are important to you, everyone's stopping you on the way and saying, come do this less important thing and pay me for the privilege of, of doing that. And, and that's what we mean when we say toll booths, and we really, I think, believe that Urbit and Ukbar and crypto in general can get rid of some of these things. One, one concrete example that I use and is related to college when I'm trying to explain this to um, friends is, you know, when I first 
went to move abroad after college to Korea. One of the early, too early for networks did, I guess, was I just had to go through this really (laughs) annoying process of getting my diploma notarized and verified and sent at the sent to Korea and I had to pay a bunch of people to do this. Whereas you can imagine what if I had an NFT diploma and I just paid my like tiny little ETH fee and sent it to the right people and they could check the provenance. And this is just one example of, of people trying to get in the way and, uh, and mess, mess with your shit when you're just trying to do something simple. Yeah. I think like, I think that, yeah, if you really dig into it, your entire life, is basically like a series of toll booths. Like I remember very distinctly, it's like, okay, I was thinking about like where to go to college. And I was like, okay, if I go to like, you know, like a really good school, like an Ivy league, it gets me out of this set of tool toll booths. And I was like, okay, um, if I go to this other set, it doesn't really help me at all. I'm going to have to like keep being revetted by every single step in the process. So that was like very explicitly my decision. Like, okay. Mm. And even like Harvard versus say Princeton, I was like, okay, Harvard has brand recognition abroad and I want to live abroad. And like Princeton doesn't. So like, if I want to get out of this set of like, I don't know, like being vetted constantly, I'll just go to Harvard. That'll simplify that. All these things are are Um, little shortcuts, right? That we're trying to take in order to not have to deal with proving ourselves all the time, I guess, in terms of these reputational toll booths or something, but it's, it's all an attempt to streamline our life, right? And I think that that's something that the network age is about. And, you know, to some degree, the network state is an idea that, like, we now have the technological tools to live the way we want, to get rid of the people who are, who are in our way, who are trying to stop us from self-actualizing. Yeah, I think, like... Um... Yeah, everyone's trying to like basically force you down one path. I mean, a great example of this is like healthcare. Like we talked about this, Mitchell, right? You had some questions about, hey, if I want to move abroad, you know, how do what's I get the healthcare situation? Yeah. How do you get your drugs through. across the borders? Yeah. And uh, it's like weird that if you like look at, I've talked to a lot of people about, you know, when they wanted to quit their jobs and they're like, well, I can't because I need healthcare. Like I can't become just like an independent mm-hmm. contractor because I won't have healthcare covered. So that's like one of the big, there's like, there's a couple of these big pain points, these big toll booths in the US, like college education, uh, used to be grad school. I don't see that as much now, but like even for data science, like I did a fair amount of data science and like I was looking at job positions, everything required a master's for some reason. And it's like, do you learn anything at the master's? Like who gives a shit? But all the jobs require it to even get the interview. Um, and then you have healthcare that forces you to basically be a full-time employee to get that benefit. They'll kill you of- if you don't work for the corporations. They'll just let you die. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, euthanasia is actually number, like, I think top five cause of death now in Canada because, like, the hospitals are reducing costs. So That's nice, though. Yeah, I mean, like that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes it's, like, your time, and sometimes you need someone else to decide what it is your time. One thing I wanted to get into here was just how uh, there's very real costs to not jumping through these hoops. And you guys were talking about healthcare, but even the one that I think everyone in crypto knows is just how incredibly annoying and like almost unfeasible it is in some cases to uh, not have banking and how we take, you know, how we take that for granted and the amount of hoops there are to do banking outside of, again, a common theme here will be whenever you go outside of a normal context. So if you're doing banking in the context of you have a white collar job in the U S 
making 150K a year. It's, everything's pretty straightforward in terms of how it works. Your bank understands who you are. Um, you can do whatever you want. You can you know, pay for stuff and order your stuff on Amazon. As soon as you're moving around, you know, moving around the world, maybe you're not an American and trying to figure out, like trying to open a bank somewhere else uh, or maintain one you have and have like, you know, your regular amounts of money coming in because you're not a W-2 worker or something. Uh, it gets really, really hard and the toll booth gets really, really bad. And for me, this is the part that I've been rebelling against sort of you know, rebelling is maybe the wrong word. Just. I don't like it, <laughs> it uh, that I've that I've disliked for pretty much my whole life is how these processes discriminate in such a way as to force you into a very certain set of tracks. Like in the case of someone in the U.S. working a W-2 mm -hmm. job so that you can you know get health care, have your banking set up and not have to think about anything. And in what ways, like, was it a problem living abroad? Like, I think, was it like, you've bought property abroad, right? So did you need to, like, go through all these hoops to buy property? Like, what were the main pain points where, where you're kind of locked into banking? Yeah, sure. Let me, uh, yeah. So definitely for, I, I think people are probably not aware of, if you want to, let's say, buy property abroad, you're going to have to go through a fairly annoying procedure to show source of funds. And very often, if you have the funds that like necessary to buy property abroad, you've often acquired them in a way that wasn't just saving up at your day job. And most of the procedures for people might not even be aware of this, but if you want to get money into banks in other countries, very often you have to provide the in, sort of the incoming bank there with a ton of detail about how you got your money, all the, you know, your old bank statements, um, any other kind of documentation that they want. There's, there's like a very, uh, one, one funny example uh, is, well, I don't know if it's funny, but when you're doing stuff like getting alternate like passports in the Caribbean and things like that, which is a thing I you know, may or may not have experience with, uh, there's like actually like multiple procedures there. Well, for, where first you'll have to prove to the government where your money came from and show tons of supporting documentation, like just a full rectal exam. And then just to send <laughs> the money into the country to pay their, uh, you know, via their bank, their bank will then request that in even more detail. And it's this incredibly manual hands-on process that goes far and beyond, you know, any kind of reasonable, you know, okay, we're trying to stop, you know, a few kinds of criminal uh, type thing. And all of this combines to, you know, very much make it where I probably would have preferred to just do stuff only in the U.S. from a financial perspective, uh, being a U.S. citizen, because the, like, the flows are so much easier, where if you want anything outside of that, it just gets, it just compounds and becomes more and more painful. And I haven't gone through these types of processes very often because of that. So, Nilron, you mentioned this idea that really resonates with me, that our current system is designed to force us into certain tracks, especially people who are... Uh, I don't know, whether, whether you're sort of like intelligent and hyper-educated or whether you're living a more trad lifestyle, there are only certain options that are available to you. We've all seen people go into these elite colleges and be really idealistic and want to make change in the world, and they come out as iBankers somehow. So I'm curious as to what you see as the reasons forcing us into these tracks and how transitioning to the network age and access to this new type of technology will actually, as you said, unbundle uh, uh, this set of experiences that is open to us. 
Yeah. So I think it's basically like you go into college and I observe this like with my classmates and with myself and it's, you basically have like just a very, you know, very different people coming in all across the world. And then it's kind of like, okay, you get to like job time. And it's like, what are the jobs that are actually recruiting on campus? It was basically like investment banks, consulting firms. And to some extent you already kind of knew you could go to grad school. So there's like three tracks in that respect, the entrepreneurial track, hadn't even really come about, but that's now like obviously a fourth track in this and like iBanking and consulting have kind of slightly decreased. Like why was it that people picked these options? Well, one, it was just like way easier. Like the, the companies were coming to us and so they, they were telling us, oh, you're like, you're so special, you're great, like we want to hire you. Um, so like the inertia was kind of in that direction of picking from one of those tracks. And then they basically fully bundled it where it's like these were kind of a small set of jobs where we could live in cool cities. And like, why did we care about that? Well, it's like our friends were going to be moving to those cities. So like if we wanted to live in, if we wanted to like keep our same friend group, the inertia was again like, okay, I need to like go to New York, SF, maybe stay in Boston, although Boston was the less cool option there. Um, <laughs> and so again, there was like this kind of inertia pushing you on that track. And then it was, okay. Uh, I'm graduating. I'm not on my parents' health insurance. Um, I need health insurance. Okay, I need like a job that's like legit. I'm not just going to like become a freelancer and discover myself through like, you know, experimenting for a few years, working in random jobs. So again, that kind of port that pushed towards immediately getting a job with health insurance. And then another aspect was kind of like, I was very keen to like, and actually a lot of my friends just like buy property. You know, it's a little bit boomer now in hindsight, but I was just like, okay, I want to buy property. And I knew like, I had already been talking to loan officers even when I was like graduating college about like the requirements and I wouldn't, it basically would have taken me probably an extra, instead of two years to get a house, it probably would have been five to 10 if I was sort of freelancing related to what Tim Leck was talking about with the whole sort of like requirements for getting loans. Like those are very particular and they want to see like steady source of income over at least a year. And so, yeah, it was just like way easier. And then everything was bundled. Like uh, financialization was bundled in this track. Um, the people I wanted to hang out with, the sort of quality of life was very obvious that I could have a good quality of life in this track. And then everything was basically like unknown in the other track. And how does this sort of, how does this differ in the network age where I just, I don't know, especially with the young people, like the young people who are like, you know, Zoomers, um, they're just like questioning everything. And they're like, do I need a college education to get this job? And like, Weirdly today, the answer is no. Like I know a lot of people in crypto who dropped out or didn't even start college and they have the same access to jobs as people who went through it. So it's very different from when Tim Luck was like, yes, I've like made it. I've graduated university. Now I have options. The Zoomers have options today via sort of this crypto parallel economy. And, you know, do they, can they get access? Are things still gated? Yes, some things are still gated. So these people might have trouble getting like a home loan. Um, but now it's like we can work remotely. And, you know, a big question is like, do we even need to buy a property? Like, or can we just buy it in cash if we're living abroad? Um, so I think like, I think the, the landscape has fundamentally changed because like some of the, one of the biggest booths of university has been removed. That also removes grad school, which is, you know, was another huge booth for everyone on this track. Um, and I'd say just like, you know, healthcare, like another, another one I talked about there, like 
you can just buy healthcare abroad. It's way cheaper than the US. It's like so cheap that like I don't have health insurance. I just like know that I have money set aside in case I need to, um, yeah, need to like just if an emergency comes up, yeah. I think uh, what you're saying about the types of incentives that there are for leading a particular lifestyle are all true, right? You know, you talk about healthcare, but also, you know, there's a type of financial education and security that comes with these sort of trad jobs, you know, of friends who become lawyers, you know, they have 401k set up and they have this automated system that's like, if you just stay in this job forever, you're going to be fine. And I think that... You know, I I was thinking about this. I went to a wedding recently, which a bunch of friends from college and my girlfriend didn't go there. I was looking around. I was like, all these people seem the same to me and had no idea that it was actually a lot of these universities and paths can start out as pretty diverse groups, people from all kinds of financial backgrounds and across the country. And you get pushed through this great filter and everyone comes out looking the same. Okay, so if we agree that that, you know, sort of great filter is a problem that sort of squeezes everyone into this, let's talk about a concept that's very near and dear to my heart, which is defecting from this. And I'll start, Phil, with an example that you gave a second ago, which was, you know, the amount of what you would have to do if you wanted to buy a house, Uh, and the process you would have to go through to get a loan. And getting a loan is the only way to make it, like, sort of financially interesting in terms of the ROI that you're going to get maybe on renting it out or something like that. And you gave one alternative, uh, which was to, you know, buy houses abroad in cash. But for me, the more interesting thing is just defecting completely from that whole toll booth system. Um, You know, even when you buy the house abroad in cash and... Trust me, there's, there's, plenty of, <laughs> there's plenty of other toll booths that arise there. And the network age is about looking at, okay, how can I get that return potentially you know, in crypto? Uh, would I rather invest in projects that my friends are doing or save natively in crypto or you know, lend out stable coins for yield? I think um, the ETH merge is going to be a really big deal because it essentially like gives yield based on the size of the crypto economy to people who are staking in it. And I'm not going to get into merge debates here, but I think it's potentially really interesting. But the point is, I think especially starting in 2020, I had def- like, I really decided to start, let's call it defecting from that traditional financial system that was based in, let's say, real estate, uh, stock type financial assets, stuff like that. And... And just see, like, okay, I want to invest in crypto. I want to build companies based in Urbit. I want to network with people there. And just get out of this filter. And one effect of it has been that I still am in touch with some people from that, let's call it trad, good university world, but less and less. And I'm less and less legible to them in a lot of ways. Is that because you lost kind of faith in like stocks and real estate? Because I knew you owned a fair amount of real estate and I did too going into 2020. Um, Is it because you lost faith in that or it just crypto became so much more appealing? Crypto, well, two things. One, crypto really clicked in, in terms of the value proposition and where I thought it would attract a lot of money going into it going forward. 
And real estate itself, uh, let's uh, just to choose one example, did lose attractiveness in the wake of COVID, uh, just with, you know, not being able to collect rents for the most part. But I'll note mm. that, you know, people who were in stocks, you know, felt fine post-COVID as everything, you know, as everything ripped with money printing. So I think that it's it's not quite as much based on losing faith in the assets as just the other asset becoming really appealing and wanting to be early in this completely parallel world where you're building projects with people and funding them how you want. Uh, your money isn't uh, sort of controlled in the same way as you sort of know you have it and it doesn't have to go through various booths. It's just, it's just a really cool feeling. Yeah, I'm curious, like, because... So a lot of people are still very into real estate, I've noticed, even in our crypto circles, even in Urbit. And I kind of wonder if they just haven't had the pain points of like what you mentioned, not being able to collect rent. <laughs> I had the same thing, you know, I wasn't able to collect rent from a tenant. And, you know, someone said it really well, I think, in a Urbit chat group where they're like, not your goons, not your house. Real estate <laughs> is primal, man. You want... You just want to own a physical big thing and stand on your hill and say, say this is mine. I think that that's true. I think that until you've experienced, like that's the positive side of it. Um, I think two things, until you've experienced the downsides of physical ownership, like Phil was talking about uh, with, you know, having to not being able to collect rents or, you know, not being able to access your property due to a conflict or having like, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, rent moratoriums. There's all, you know, there's all kinds of things, you know, all kinds of things there that can happen. But I also would argue that real estate ownership itself is this kind of lame abstraction that we've all gotten really into. Like, what does real estate ownership mean? You're standing on the hill and you're saying it's yours, but, you know, if you're delinquent on your property taxes, it's not. If, like, you know, there's, there's any number of kinds of other things that's just, you know, one that could disrupt that ownership. Ultimately, the ownership exists because you own sort of a really bad NFT that's registered, you know, probably with your state or your town. And so that's not to say that the urge to sort of hold something physical in your hands isn't primal. It's that specifically real estate ownership is actually a very sort of, I would call it like almost bad digital concept that people have taken for more for more than what it is or sort of assigning too much to that you know to that abstraction well i think that we need the the metaverse to really catch up with this i was reading some tweet about how bitcoin or crypto will only take off once you can stand in the metaverse and see a vault of your uh, crypto represented as gold and dive in like uh you know uh daffy duck or whoever so i i and i you know that's like a a joke, right? But I think that there is something as we're talking about how do you defect here where you still want to replicate a, a sense of efficacy that can be missing from a fully digital world. This is a great lead into the concept of defection because we've been sort of dancing around the edges of it and I think we can get more specific on it in a second now. But as we do, I want to note that defection is not costless. Uh, in fact, it's we're, as we're going to look at various ways in which we've defected or we think, you know, other people could, we're going to note that there are very real costs. So when I, let's say, when you, let's maybe start to give a definition of defection. Defection is when you see a toll booth and you're like, fuck that. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to deal with it. I don't care what the, what it you know, what the downsides are. I'm going to find a way to make do without going through this toll booth. It's probably, it's a very 
primal impulse that's obviously I think everyone who's, you know, read accounts of people who, you know, did various like sort of journeys of discovery and things like that, or even of colonization, um, the people can relate to where you're you, essentially you're in a, in a context and you're like, screw this context. I don't want to be in England anymore. I want to sort of do whatever I want, even though of course that has, you know, very strong risks and costs. So the fact that I defect from wanting to own real estate, uh, yeah, I do lose, you know, I do lose something there. Like I, I don't get that thing and I don't get that tactile, you know, metaverse, like Scrooge McDuck swimming in gold sensation. So one thing about defection is you're, you have to be ready to also accept the fact that these are costs and you're, you're, you're burning the ships to some degree. So then what, what do you get? And I know that sounds like a silly question, but I think it's worth digging into if there are all these systems that are set up to have us live and work in one way. We really are positing a lot of our discussion and urban maximalism on the idea that there is value to what we call defection, that there are real benefits. And ha have you found those? And is it, is it worth those sacrifices? Sure. Uh, let's stay on the financial one, then I'll go to the computing one. On the financial side, as you said, there's those negatives of not having, quote unquote, the physical real estate. That's a feeling I know and like. Uh, but on the other side, I have the feeling of, you know, holding the information that I need to keep track of my money, like in my head. Um, I won't say all of my mechanisms for securing digital wealth, but like I'm fully in control of them and have them. And that feels really great. I know ways that I can spend that money. And so it doesn't feel sort of locked away. On the computing side, uh, let's say I'm actually am building up more of a thing as a you know Twitter influencer now, which is more of an old world thing. Um, and I'm acutely aware of the fact that at any point, Twitter could pull the plug on me and that I do need to have... Your brain would collapse. Networks. You wouldn't make it anymore. <laughs> I think you're fully in the, you're in the Twitter singularity. I mean, it's, it's a real thing. Like you're, you're inside it and you're getting advantages from what they provide. And Twitter is this, okay, let's talk about something like Twitter a little bit, because it's this very weird nether space between the old and the new worlds. And in some sense, it's its own kind of toll booth where if you break its rules in certain, in certain ways, you could get kicked off. And I'm pretty aware of what those are and stay, you know, very far away from those lines. Uh, but on the other hand, it is a very, you know, network age thing in the sense that it's uh, fully digital. Uh, I'm sort of building my personality based on, you know, who I am and what people see about me and how they interact with me. And, you know, most people there have no idea, you know, where I went to school or what my prior experience was. That's actually a really interesting one where you're kind of, I'm on Twitter, I'm defecting from let's say, let's call it like sort of, you know, the New York Harvard type complex, but I am still somewhat in the, you know, web two complex. So didn't, I, th I think we're, there's, there's degrees of this. Didn't Justin Murphy just tweet about a new Urbit Twitter? What is it? Trill or something that is uh, coming our way? Yeah, this is an interesting topic. I think like, so there is some stuff there. I think there's a lot of fundamental work to do in a peer to peer context like Urbit and a lot of network effects needed for it to, you know, give the, the experience that Twitter does. And so for this reason, I've really focused a lot on Urbit as like a, 
operating system for managing more tight knit uh, social groups and arbitrary like programs you run between them and things like that. And for this use case of I need to broadcast to the world and have them find me, probably going to be, you know, I'll, I'll probably be more on Twitter for the next, you know, 12 to 36 months. Yeah, do you think Urbit will ever have that level of discovery? Like, I, what I find is like really interesting is Urbit. It's like, like I can meet someone at say a nomad event in Buenos Aires and then loop them into Urbit, and then they're suddenly like in a close inner circle. Whereas like Twitter seems to have no mechanism to basically bring someone into like an inner circle of trust. Um, so I'm kind of curious how you see like this relationship between like what we do on Urbit, which like obviously we're incredibly bullish on, but also the fact we still use like Web two tools and Web two systems. Well, there's also like, like Urbit doesn't, the nature of being a peer to peer thing is it doesn't have algorithms to manipulate discovery, which I think is something that actually limits um, Urbit's ability to grow. Like to some degree, as much as we shit on the algorithms and feel like we're being manipulated, that is also what's providing value in some ways. Like if you look at the, the Twitter feed that you can click that's just most recent, a lot of times it's just absolute trash, right? I use Twitter in only in most recent mode. Uh, I'm fully, like, I know how to do everything there. But I get your point. I don't think there are strong technical reasons why this can't be done on Urbit. There's, you know, there's some engineering-like things. There's some design things. Um, you're right. It's not, it's not particularly there right now. I like Nilrun's framing of... Sort of flipping it the other way of when I show people Urbit, they immediately can get into certain circles and work in that way. And it's actually very hard to do that for someone just joining Twitter to sort of participate in those kind of groups. And so that's an interesting flipping. And I think what it points to in my mind is that from the perspective of like, it's going to be hard in the near term to defect from the global discovery square, but I think Urbit is going to like is already providing a very strong defection for what people use things like Discord for in terms of uh, communicating, and I think that's only going to you know go faster as new stuff is released towards the end of this year. So Tim, like, I really like what you said about there, about Twitter being both like a defection and a continuation. And I think that's like kind of a broader point about like the fact defection isn't just uh, like you don't just defect from the entire thing. You could do that. And like, you know, I think to some extent you did, whereas both Jesse and I kind of have like different experiences with defection. So I think it'll be kind of fun to like go into like how each of us defected and like which aspects of the old society we defected into this kind of new network age reality. Um, so just for myself, like, you know, I actually defected first on just location. I wanted to be out of Boston. I hated Boston. So I defected, went to Mexico, uh, was basically immediately hooked on the nomad life. But I hadn't, importantly, I hadn't defected from the other things. I was still married. Um, I still had houses. I was still saving mostly in Are you recommending everybody gets divorced as part of joining the network age? <laughs> is that like the true defection is to is the solo man lifestyle? Definitely. Yeah, I think like, you know, give your dogs away, uh, Bitchel. Get rid of your pets. I don't know if you have dogs whoa, or cats. Whoa, but, uh, this is, yeah, I've got 20. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what you can realize is, like, actually, there's, there's animals everywhere, and you can just befriend, like, ducks in, like, Buenos Aires. You'll have a much happier life. Like, you don't, you don't need to, what, like... And that's what you're doing now as you've defected. Hmm, yeah, like, I had a dog, and now I have, like, random geese that, you know, I befriend in the parks of Palermo. So I, I think, like, you can... Defection, like... And I hadn't even gotten rid of that pet initially. It's just later on. And, like, one... I think if... The, the key is, like, pick that part of the system that you really, really hate. Um, like that part that's like holding you back in life and defect from that first and then see like, oh, okay, is this going well? Is this fun? And then like, how can I further optimize my life after that? I like to think of it as, and in for full disclosure, I was too early to defecting. So when I say defecting, it would mean like not following a standard career path because like, and so in that sense, I sort of blowtorched my resume very early on in terms of just, you know, moving abroad to do things like teach English or, you know, random other stuff that didn't uh, fit into any kind of resume building. I got into law school at one point and like consciously turned it down because I wanted to do things in another manner. Uh, I was, you know, not saving any money really. And when I did... I would sort of, I, I guess in that, that was one place where I didn't defect. Once I started making money and saving it more, I did do it in real estate. But even then, it was in offshore structures and not setting things up to, you know, get a mortgage in the U.S. or something like that. But one thing I want to note is that I was doing all of this probably too early. And when I say too early, I specific, let's, let's look specifically at, like, career. I know a lot of people now who are ages, let's say like 19 to 25, who have defected in that either they didn't go to college, uh, they dropped out of college, they didn't really worry about building anything about their sort of career in a very, in a very traditional way. And that's fine because they're good at programming. And that gives them an option to do it. As I mentioned, you know, in other places and in interviews, um, when I was graduating from college, there wasn't really that option. You could just get a programming job without having a degree. There was still that. But they weren't nearly as lucrative. They wouldn't have been remote work. Uh, there, there just wasn't that option. And so in that sense, I was much too early because while I was, <laughs> you know, blowtorching my past options or sort of like, you know, the, uh, the the tracks that I could have gone on, there wasn't really a ton to go on to. And I wasn't getting a ton from it in, let's say, just financially, for example. Whereas I think that like, let's say, you know, kids today uh, have the option to both defect and have that be a really lucrative thing. So by analogy, I would be like an explorer in the year 1350, like getting in a ship off the coast it's of Portugal and sailing analogy, for 20 huh? miles. Well, I think note the year. Like, I don't think the Portuguese started doing anything until, you know, more like the mid 1400s. So I'm here like 100 years earlier in my fishing boat off the coast of Portugal. Your, your bathing habits are Atlantic. probably the same. And, it's, you're like, hey, man, there's like a huge ocean over there and there's probably a ton of money to be made. But like you don't even have the ship that can get you like even like 100 miles offshore. And I just sort of go offshore and drown instantly <laughs> is how. Whereas, whereas I think people now are there. I think the defection is more like, you know, like Diaz has already rounded the Cape of Good Hope. And you're setting up to go on like a lucrative expedition to India to get spices. Like we're sort of closer to that kind of era. What I, I think you're saying, though, and this is the point that really matters to me, is that we now live in a time where it's 
possible for someone to identify a set of constraints that they are feel are holding them back, especially institutional constraints, whether those mm-hmm. are social filters that move you into a certain type of traditional lifestyle or career path, or whether they're institutional filters that want you to live in certain places, give your money to certain banks or healthcare networks. And now we once these are identified, you have the ability to choose which ones you want to be a part of your life, which ones you want to excise and create an existence that really fits your preferences in a, in a new way. And this, and there is the technology that exists and importantly, the uh, mindset that is shared by enough people to support that, that new way of living. Wow, you should package all of that up into a tweet storm and gain some clout. Yeah, I'll do, do a couple of tweets. That's really, I mean, that's one of the best summaries of what the network age is that I've heard. And, you know, even while I'm hearing it, I'm thinking of the feeling I had in like, let's say circa 2010, when a lot of my friends would live in New York and their whole social life and dating life and professional life was like located in that nexus or later for people in San Francisco. And I just didn't like it. I don't have like a great reason for it. I just like don't like having that kind of constraint and just wanted to defect for the sake of it. So that resonates, but sort of going to you, I think you also had experience defecting fairly, like possibly too early in some dimensions. So I'm curious about what your experience was like or how you, how it felt for you and what era this was. Well, I mean, you being vigil. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I went just after college because I didn't see myself as fitting into some of these paths that we had outlined, but really didn't know what else there was. I wasn't, I didn't want to apply for a job. And I, uh, that was my main thing was it seemed like a lot of work and working seemed bad when all it could offer you was money for your time. And, you know, I, that when I was 21, I would much rather have had time than money. And so I literally just applied to like two jobs uh, both of them were just forwarded to me by by friends on like dorm lists, and one of them was to go uh, work in in South Korea where we met Tim Luck. And I, <laughs> that might have been I just me spamming you. I got paid. Been, yeah, like we're the same exactly. year. We're the same year, and I got paid by like the South Koreans to like spam the dorm list at Harvard. You yeah. sent you sent me on my path, so I I just sent that out. Because, you owe him. Yeah, I just sent that out you because I didn't money, want to yeah. do. I didn't want to do the normal thing and I didn't particularly care because it, 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 I didn't particularly care where it took me because I just wanted any other option. And that what's interesting about that is why living and working in that job didn't end up being sustainable. It did connect me with a lot of other people who are interested in a different sort of life that involved more freedom and more exploration. And I mean, there was a fuck ton of hassles with it, you know, some of them being financial. I I told a story on an earlier podcast about having to travel around Kyrgyzstan with like, you know, $20,000 because I couldn't wire it home. And, um, you know, my, my boss had to lie to some bank lady about my visa status for me to get a bank account. And so I was, I was constantly committing fraud and all this was very (laughs) nerve wracking for me. And, uh, so now I, as I, I've settled into my mountain lifestyle, uh, which is, I guess, its own sort of defection, but I, I wonder what um, would have happened if these tools had been set up earlier to support people who 
wanted to to create their own life more piecemeal. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, like Substack had a huge effect on this, right? Like this isn't oh, what do you mean? This isn't like a crypto tool where it's just like you can suddenly uh, make money off of just publishing good content, and that like wasn't really a great track before Substack. There just wasn't a tool it wasn't for like possible. creatives. Yeah, it just wasn't possible to make money off of it, and. Now it's like, I, I kind of, something that really interests me is kind of like, I feel like we're really early into tools like Substack, not from a technical perspective, but from sort of a empowerment of creativity perspective where you can start like, not just, you know, I, I'm like, I'm really bullish on just honestly using like tokens for like a musician who wants to uh, launch an album. Like I'm really, really bullish on that. Um, but and I but think why is like that different than just like that. doing a, a Kickstarter or something like that? Because it's not, they're not taking a fee and it's like more direct or, but you know, some no, tools like that already exist. No, you're basically like leveraging like one of the best things about tokens, which is sort of like incentives to early adopters. Whereas Kickstarter is just like every single person who gets into the Kickstarter is more or less the same. Um, so you can basically like kickstart discovery of artists through incentivization of it. From my perspective, I think I agree. I, so I agree with the idea that Substack unlocked something. And I also agree with the idea that the current, you know, types of things for other creators and creatives are maybe not satisfactory. From my perspective, the most exciting thing about let's say if we think of Substack as in sort of an early part of the network age, that it, it does give some writers a chance to defect. I'm really excited about the intersection of programmable capital with like really rich programmable systems like Urbit, because I think specifically we'll start to discover models way beyond that of like Substack just by people iterating and figuring out what it is. And I think even like limiting it to just the idea of tokens as we perceive them now, is maybe too limited. I was talking with this about this with Justin Murphy on his pod, where he was mentioning this idea that like um, creators right now are kind of limited because they do have these like big marketing channels and they're good at that and promoting. But even when they have programmers in the, their audience, it's very hard for them to tap into that because it's hard for just get the way that our today's systems are. It's hard for those programs to do some programmers to do something useful at less than a startup scale. So for me, it's much more about unlocking a ton of experimentation because we always find in tech waves that the things you end up with at the end of the wave are very different from what people thought would be the best ways to do it before you actually got experience with doing it. I think that that's one of the most exciting things about Urbit uh, is its promise of composability and what that means for experimentation when you have all these parts that are like little Lego bricks can fit together in different ways and make unexpected tools that, you know, the, the, the two people who made the bricks may have, might have never thought that you could stick them together and make a better tool. I saw a tweet the other day that was someone who said how to explain composability to your friends, and it was a Papa John's uh, garlic dipping sauce inside a Keurig machine, and it just fit perfectly. And uh, for, for anyone who wants to, to be drinking their little, their little garlic coffee, you know, it seemed like an impossible life. And here we are with some genius who, who sticks those things together. And I, I really do think that that's one of the coolest things about Urbit is you have a bunch of crazy creative minds who are saying like, hey, let's, how, let's see how this all can, can play with each other. 
It sounds funny and like a joke, but like really some of the most interesting things in computing have come from that type of playfulness and from systems that enable it. And when you have like smart people and they can just make things and share them with other people easily and sort of permissionlessly and just play around with it. And the, you know, you can see what happens by putting the Papa John's dipping sauce in the query machine. Delicious. Stuff, stuff, yeah, stuff, stuff emerges. And this has been a sort of well-known thing in let's call it startup land for a while, which is that you, you, investors know not to be overly skeptical of things that look like toys or weird ideas or stuff like that, because to generate a new sort of business flow or way for people to do things, you almost have to start off with something that isn't all like sort of already obviously a good idea. And I could find any number of essays on this topic. You know, someone like Paul Graham is obsessed with it. Uh, but it, or it's even a like well, blue sky research, thing. you know, that's like in hard sciences, a lot of that has the same idea. We, we do it just because we want to know the answer. We think it would be fun. And that leads to practical applications down the line. Yeah, and programming has this even more because you can sort of do that research so much faster and let people, you know, use the fruits of it and experiment with it. And then, as you noted with composability, let them in turn, you know, add their own experimentations on. Yeah, and it seems if you can basically take something, like, say, that took a dev, like, a week to two weeks before, and now it, like, can be done in an evening. Like, I think of this app uh, that Hazad made, the Handshake app, where we were just talking about it. Like, we were at drinking beers with, like, a few guys in New York. And we were, like, talking about this idea. And he's like, oh, that's cool. He's like, maybe I'll have time to do it. But, you know, he has a full-time job at Ukbar. And then he just, like, sends it to me the next morning. And I'm like, uh. So it's like, it's like a binary thing where, like, this, if this had been harder, it probably wouldn't have even happened. Like, there isn't that experimentation if it's even, you know, 5x harder than it is right now on Urbit. Importantly, he also didn't have to deploy that or maintain that in the same way. And I think just, you know, we started this podcast back in the day as Web Zero, so we can get a little bit into this technical side again. Um, you know, one thing people always forget who aren't programmers is how little of programming is just making that initial sort of toy proof of concept, and then how much of it is deploying it, maintaining it, making sure the server stays up, all that. And if you can remove that, just you know, a lot of a lot of flowers start to bloom. Oh yeah, hell so Urbit. Yeah, so like it's it's funny. Oh hell Urbit. But it's it's actually the same on like going somewhat more nomadic in the network age. Like the cost of experimentation was so low. I basically um, I only spent the same amount going to Mexico as I did on a normal vacation. It's just I had an intentional vaca- vacation where I was thinking, okay, could I do this as a lifestyle? So, like, the cost was low because Airbnbs, Google Maps, uh, translation apps. So it was super easy to just experiment with, like, going nomadic in a new society. All right. Let's talk about that a little bit because my feeling on things like when you tell people words like the network age or the network state, this is actually much more where their mind goes than what we were talking about with things like, you know, financial or, like, avoiding institutions or, you know, programs, they like immediately always start thinking of digital nomads. And I was very much a part of that community. Like I probably was, I I was like a digital nomad in the mid 2010s. I was hanging out in the same places where people would go for such things, sort of, you know, the Bali's, the Thailand's, uh, Colombia's, like stuff like that. Um, And I'm interested in what you think are the differences between what you're doing or where you see things are going and digital nomadism? Like, do you think that 
digital nomads are a precursor that are now being obsoleted in some way with a new thing taking hold? Or do you think that that part of life was basically right and that you will just see that sort of become better? Yeah, I, I like this question. I, I like think about this a lot. I've been asking the digital nomads this as, a, as I'm at events. Um, and I think like a good contrast, a good analogy is like the difference between being just like a freelancer, like maybe like freelance um, web designer versus like participating in the crypto economy. What I see with the crypto economy is you're not really just like a one-off contractor. You're kind of looped into this entire ecosystem where one job leads to the next and sort of like, oh, this guy's good. Then we'll pull him to the next project in crypto. And there's sort of like, you're always going back. It's the same with like digital nomading versus network age society. Network age was just like, you're sort of an isolated, autonomized human without like much of like a network. Whereas in network age, like what we see is basically, you maybe you go to El Salvador, but you're looped in on the back end to all of the urban groups that are nomading, um, that are living abroad. I so I, I don't think it's, it's not really, it's not isolated. It's like an entire society on the back end. And like the digital nomad, it's like such a sad existence because it's just like, you know, they're an isolated, say, IT worker working out of Buenos Aires. They don't have what we have in terms of this like linked up society where we could go almost anywhere in the world and like pretty much have like very close friends who we also work with together on business. So it's, it's way more integrated. It's closer to like a city, like the difference between living by yourself in the countryside versus in the old days, you know, in the 20th century, being in a city and being fully looped in. So you would say that in contrast to the IT worker who moves abroad to like Argentina or Japan, and I've met plenty of those people, the difference in, in your case is that you're part of an entire city whose residents live, you know, some of them in like New York, Austin, Mexico City, parts of Europe, stuff like that. And that's very much your sort of, I guess, like, like primary, let's say, economic um, leadership, whatever sort of place you go to get interesting ideas, people to hang out with, business to do, stuff like that. Is like in, in, the, in the sense that people mean uh, when they think of a city. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I, I like this idea. I think that's exactly correct. It's, it is a digital city in that like it has social opportunities, ideas, um, jobs built in. And it's just like, it's kind of funny because it's a city, but like, <laughs> it's a city that we've never seen before. It's almost like, uh, like we've literally never, I don't think we've ever encountered something quite like this because the tools didn't exist to create such a digital city that could span across geographies. But uh, who do you who do you kiss and hold hands with? You know, I'm 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 here joking here, <laughs> but I I, I do uh, wonder what you question. think of the uh, are the consequences of moving certain parts of your life into this digital meta realm, and whether you're giving up certain parts of life that are are really valuable. You just have to like have like just really a like awesome waifus and then you're fine. Like yeah. you obviously yeah. don't have sufficiently. Well, like, but you know, earlier, earlier, Nil Run was telling us that the only way to live uh, the fully self-actualized network age man is to get to get rid of your waifu. So there's well, you, you upgrade to one that likes this lifestyle that like values the digital city and is like wow. You the install city is, like, you the install waifu two point Mm -hmm. Yeah, like there was this old saying where like Bitcoin is a life changing event, uh, you know, a little riff on life changing. And like, I think that was true, although Bitcoin as sort of a society as like your sort of society as a service sucks. And so what we're building is like a city you'd actually want to be in. Um, but yeah, I think there's something very fundamental. Like I even had a very explicit decision about like 
you know, do I do I stay in Boston and stay married or do I go abroad? And I was just loving uh, Mexico and like this new lifestyle so much more that I, it was an easy decision for me. Let me get back to Bitchell's question and kind of frame it a, like a little bit more concretely. So when we're talking about, you know, who do you kiss and hold hands with, you know, what we're really mm-hmm. getting at is mm-hmm. for, yeah. the, <laughs> for the parts of your life that, can't that aren't you know let's say business oriented high-end socializing oriented stuff like that how do you make that work and do you think that the experience is as good because that's very clearly what you lose by let's be concrete um, you have the option to in not defecting right now and if you want to live in the u.s you basically can go to like new york or austin some people do miami to some degree maybe chicago or something montana. but there's very few places actually this montana is a major defection so we can get into that later but you have those options and those come with their own prepackaged things where you will be able to find people to both you know kiss and hold hands with and do you know random physical life activities, uh, you know, including non-sexual ones. Escape and rooms. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like, like quite yeah. literally like this type, this type oh, of thing. Actually, yeah. Let me, let me go into, let me go into like exact detail on this. Right. So we just did Buenos mm-hmm. Aires, Dachis and I, um, how did we do it? We didn't know anyone here. And so we basically like looked at Facebook groups and meetups, used those to f- target our initial activities. We went to those activities, found the cool people there. And now we're going on like a yacht tour tomorrow with like the cool people. Um, so it's kind of like you, you can basically just like join. There's already a ton of activities lists. Um, so you can basically just join those figure out people you actually like. And then it's very important to kind of be the organizer to some extent to be like, hey, you're an interesting person. Let's get to know you better. Um, Come to this event, like the polo day, the yacht day, or even just like come to a restaurant, get coffee. Um, So you you pull from these existing networks for activities. You're starting to ask people on mandates. Yeah, man, I actually got asked on a mandate. Uh, I'm pretty sure the guy was gay. I had to keep dropping, like, sort of Christian hints and sort of, like, I was married hints. But uh, I got a lot of in- interesting info out of it. Congratulations. So I, you basically... But I, yeah, yeah. I want to I uh, note yeah. that, like, both, you know, being Christian and being married, those are, like, not going to be, like... Sure, sure. Like, those might be the biggest signs like, of being gay. Uh, I, I was going to say, those are, like, the biggest signs of gayness there are. <laughs> Yeah, I moved it into, like, talking about just Argentine women, which was probably really uncomfortable for this guy. And he yeah. clearly, like, wasn't uh, loving that part of the conversation. But um, I, I, the kiss and hold hands part is actually really interesting because it's actually one of the biggest <laughs> pain points. Um, and, yeah. of course, you can just go gay. But, um, you know, someone tried to groom Dachas into that. He's like, you know, I was straight once, too, to Dachas. But if you want to be, like, a straight male abroad um, with, like, you know, a girlfriend and stuff like that, I think you it's a similar strategy, like events. Or you could do Tinder, like Tinder. I don't personally like the dating apps, but a lot of guys just go that route, and it they usually end up with the local girlfriends. Like, that worked in Ukraine. But, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not even really just people. talking about dating. I really, I really do just mean that there are parts of life that I think are irreplaceable in the physical world. And when you start sequestering <laughs> these other parts of your life to the digital sphere, it can be, I think, easy whether you want to or not to give up on those things or like relegate the, the physical parts of life to a second status tier. And those are the parts of life that I find most meaningful. 
I yeah. want to put this question in a different way because I think that Nilrun was sort of trying to answer that when he said, you know, was talking about their strategies for socializing and doing meetups and stuff like that. But what I'm really interested in is, okay, if that's true, to what degree will other people in your digital networks, if they decide to go hang out with you in Argentina or on their own, be able to, you know, use that socialization? And to what degree will they be starting, like, you know, starting from scratch again? Yeah, I think, like, that's the kind of the idea of, like, having bases, like, this idea of having hubs in a few select parts of the world where we have, like, more of, like, 24-7 society happening in the physical world where you don't have to live there all the time, but you can go there and know that you're going to be able to, like, have, like, a group of people you really, like, um, hang out with. So I, I kind of agree with Mitchell, like, the physical, to me, the physical world is more important than the digital, but the way we can kind of set up really cool physical experiences um, is by, like, tapping into this energy that's digital. It's sort of like how if you want to publish, publicize the event now, you, uh, you go to Twitter, right? You use the digital to pump energy into a physical event. Or a physical Let me try lifestyle. to bring this back to the idea of toll booths then, because to me, what you're really saying is that you can use digital organization and accumulation of information and sort of back-end networks to make that physical life better. And I think that one thing we'll get into as we explore this toll booth topic more in the future is that for, at, a, at a theoretical level, the way around it and the way to get around a toll booth is to build some piece of digital infrastructure that like wraps around it or gets like, you know, gets you around it. You're essentially, you know, replacing having to know an area and buy map and sort of navigate with physical maps with using Google Maps um, or replace, you know, replacing having to know where every restaurant is in the city with what you've saved about it and what your network has. And so the reason yeah, that yeah. I'm that I'm so bullish on just this network age and people's ability now to defect is that all of the pieces you need to get around all types of toll booths are getting better and better and money and computational organization lets you sort of participate in economic and social networks is a huge part of it. And I think up until a few years ago, we were kind of stuck doing these sort of initial forays into getting around toll booths that didn't really get there all the way, which is why, you know, the first version of digital nomads feel a little sad and isolated to us. And what I'm really excited about is that, you know, I think we have the technology now, like we can, we can build this and people really can defect. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I think that was well said. And that's a good point for us to begin wrapping this up. And I think in our next episode, we're really interested in talking about why this is the time to, to start defecting, to go build the network age, because it really is an important moment for us when there's a lot of outside pressures. And if you want to not only be early, but be on the cutting edge, then it's, it's time for us to start building it. And, you know, as we say, if you, if you build it, they'll come. So we're, we're here, we're building, and we're waiting for you all to join us. So we'll see you uh, next week.